Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Dahlia Schweitzer is um, a writer, teacher, scholar, musician, a former cabaret star who is working towards her PhD in cinema and media studies at UCLA. Let's please give her a warm round of applause. Thank you. Um, thank you, thank you. Uh, I feel like this night really isn't about me, it's about this movie and uh, Carrie and I were talking a little bit about it before and I was sort of saying um, which I think will come across to anyone that reads the book is that the the book was in many ways sort of a labor of love for me um, Cindy Sherman you know is a, a photographer that I like but I feel like you know her photographs have gotten enough attention that I was never sort of compelled to write more about her photos but it was always very perplexing to me that uh, someone is sort of well known and is written about as her would make this movie that would just be generally ignored. And I think I'm always kind of drawn to problem texts. And so it was sort of, you know, what is this this void in her body of work? And why is no one talking about it? Why has no one seen this movie? And it's a movie, you know, it's got um, Carol Kane, Molly Ringwald, Jean Triplehorn. It's not like, you know, it's some low-budget movie full of nobodies. So I think for me, it was very much this mission to kind of uh, study the film, figure out why it was sort of ignored, and then kind of try to draw attention to it as a sort of worthy part of um, this very talented photographer's body of work. And so I think that's that's really sort of what propelled me. And I've been working on this book for years. Um, my friend Crystal knows. I think I started it in 2007, 2008. And, uh, and I kept trying to get it published. And I kept getting rejected and rejected. And so it's just been this like very long process um, where for reasons I can't even totally articulate, I was just very driven to kind of bring it into the public eye. So I'm going to um, present two sections from the book for you guys. The first one sort of outlines um, the significance of the film and how it's sort of remaking the horror genre and how the character of Carol Kane um, in, the, in the film um, called Doreen uh, is really this kind of new sort of anti-hero and sort of um, demonstrates a lot of the, the ways that we're sort of rethinking women in the 21st century. And one of the things that I found really interesting about the film, which came out in 97, is that it's really a time capsule for all these things that were happening in America at that time. So unlike some films that have these very sort of archetypal narratives, you know, like the kind of the Cinderella story or whatever, Office Killer is really this, this moment in America um, in the mid-90s where, um, you know, AIDS had sort of exploded, had sort of changed the way we were understanding ourselves, disease, social interaction, our bodies, all that stuff. And then 
then at the same time you had technology coming along and literally removing bodies from the workplace. You know, this idea of working from home and increasing on anonymity due to technology and all this stuff. So everything was kind of coalescing in the mid-90s and Office Killer really captured that. So that was um, one of the things that I sort of explore over the course of the book. So the first thing I'm going to um, present to you guys deals with that and sort of that moment in time and the horror genre. And then the second section that I'll present um, is my half-serious, half-tongue-in-cheek argument that Office Killer is the unknown sequel to Basic Instinct. And then um, after I do those two sections, I'll have a Q&A where you can ask me whatever you want. Um, okay, so American photographer Cindy Sherman's first and only film, 1997's Office Killer, depicts the story of lonely and awkward Doreen Douglas as played by actress Carol Kane. When her job as copy editor for Constant Consumer Magazine is turned into an at-home position during a downsizing, she does not know how to cope. After accidentally electrocuting the office sleaze, Doreen realizes she can just move the office home with her. The bodies begin to pile up as one by one she picks off her former colleagues, intentionally targeting those who, for whatever reason, have offended her. The camp horror comes in as Doreen tends for them, taping over the gaping holes in decomposition, spraying glass cleaner as a general disinfectant, neatly arranging the body so they can all watch television together. Only when her work is done, when the appropriate victims have met their fate, does Doreen drive off into the sunset, ready to find other work and other friends in a new city. By being unattractive, unpleasant, and awkward, as well as a serial killer, Doreen is as removed as possible from the role of the typical heroine. But this is only one of the ways in which Cindy Sherman rethinks genre and gender. Today, more than ever, genre has come to be essential to understanding, appreciating, and selling films. Genre rules must be upheld, or a movie may be ignored, misunderstood, or poorly marketed. We like and need these rules in order to comprehend what we are watching. However, at the same time, genre reinvention is an important means by which art and media can respond to changes in cultural practice and public opinion. While Office Killer easily falls into the horror category, it is not a typical horror film. Even though many conventions of the genre do remain consistent, the points where they evolve illuminate much about our changing gender and power roles. Within the context of a horror film, Office Killer both critiques and pokes fun at the terrifying spread of soulless, bottom-line-obsessed capitalism while exploring persistent fears of aging, decay, and powerful women. Every horror film needs a monster, and at first glance, Office Killer's monster is Doreen. After all, she is the one accumulating bodies in her basement, single-handedly raising the office's death toll. However, as outlined by Gregory Waller, without the disequilibrium caused by the monster, there is no story to be told. By this definition, Doreen is not the monster because she does not cause the initial disequilibrium. Her actions are merely a reaction to the disequilibrium caused by Nora, the corrupt and self-serving office manager of Constant Consumer Magazine. Nora, then, is the true monster at the center of this horror narrative because she is the one responsible for irreparably harming and disrupting the status quo. As the capitalistic vampire out for herself and her own bottom line, she is the monster that 1990s America projected and feared. Tellingly, Nora is the first character shown with actual blood on her hands. Doreen only gets blood on her hands after tangling with Nora. 
When about halfway through the film, Kim turns to Daniel and asks, what do you think, Danny boy? Is your girlfriend a corporate monster yet or what? The question is not whether she is a corporate monster, but if she is one yet. As a corporate executive, it is just a matter of time. This understanding represents a turning point in the examination of Office Killer as a horror film. So if Nora is the film's monster, then what role does Doreen play? Carol Clover describes the final girl as the only character of stature who lives to tell the tale and whose personality is developed in any psychological detail. Additionally, she is intelligent, watchful, level-headed. The first character to sense something is amiss and the only one to deduce from the accumulating evidence the pattern and extent of the threat. When she downs the killer, we are triumphant. She is, by any measure, the slasher film's hero. One candidate for final girl status is Kim, the office sexpot. But despite being sympathetic and watchful, Kim is not the final girl. Kim's character is not developed in any psychological detail, a key component of the final girl's persona. We do not know her exact job or anything about her life outside of the office. Lastly, the most obvious reason why Kim is not the final girl is that she does not take down the killer. It is Doreen who drives off victorious, leaving Kim helpless and alone to pick up the pieces. When Clover's characteristics are applied to Doreen, however, she seems more obviously the final girl, but with a twist. The part of Doreen's personality that does not fit with the model for the classic final girl is her homicidal tendency, her habit of accumulating bodies. But if we reframe Doreen's killing as a rescuing of her co-workers from Nora's vampiric clutches and the confrontation with Nora as Doreen's showdown with the monster, then the final girl template is a perfect fit. Doreen has brought her colleagues to a place that represents more safety and security than the office in order to resurrect a kinder, gentler work environment, one free of downsizing and corruption. This act is Doreen's purpose. This responsibility allows her to tap into her maternal and nurturing side. And this is why Doreen grows more feminine as the film progresses. Throughout the film, Doreen appears to age in reverse, gaining confidence as she improves her makeup skills, making her progressively less horrifying. Over the course of the film, Doreen becomes, on the surface, more feminine, more nurturing, and more attractive, while Nora becomes less and less attractive, her fashion sense somehow evaporating. Office Killer seems to negate the theory that achieving power necessitates taking on masculine attributes. What does it mean that Nora is in powder puff pink when she is most in charge, or that Doreen is bedecked in red lipstick, never having looked so girly or so polished by the end of her killing rampage? Doreen becomes more classically stylish as her strength grows, her personality and power translating directly to her emerging poise and vice versa. Cindy Sherman obviously believes in makeup and fashion as forms of play, communication, and personal expression. Is the process of self-discovery merely a process of discovering how to wear makeup and deciding which costume to wear? Positioning the final girl as a figure of strength in the horror picture complicates John Berger's original dynamic of men act, women appear, or in this case, men stab, women die. After all, it is the final girl who is tasked with the responsibility of bringing down the evil beast. Doreen's ultimate moment, both as a woman in flux and as a final girl in fury, is her final showdown with Nora, which ends with Doreen stabbing Nora with a very long knife.
She is not our heroine, because if she were the heroine, then by necessity she would have been saved by someone else. Doreen is a hero by virtue of the fact that she rises to the occasion and defeats the adversary with his, or in this case her, own wit and hands, standing in the light of day with the knife in her hand, an adult at last. This is the ultimate fusion, not only of archetypes, but also of gender expression. Horror may have been the perfect medium for late 20th century America, but Doreen was truly the perfect hero for her time. The film's genre allows Office Killer to explore major cultural and social anxieties, but it is the role of Doreen that truly encapsulates that unique moment in late 90s America, incorporating our fears of women in the workplace feeling outdated and undesired, and the necessity of taking charge in order to get the job done. Many films have incoherent or mixed messages, moments of cultural clarity that are instantly contradicted by subsequent opposing messages. Other films reflect social or cultural contexts that have disappeared, serving more of an archival or nostalgic purpose. Office Killer is neither of these. The ideological messages in Office Killer come through loud and clear, and its social and cultural contexts are only more vital and relevant now. Much like similarly prophetic films Network in 1984, Office Killer predicted our fate. Office Killer is a documentary of what was and is happening in our workplace. What it foreshadows has become status quo. Our workplaces have become toxic, run through with corporate monsters, milking company profits for their own padded accounts. Our economies have grown wildly out of balance. In other words, Office Killer is not just a reaction to 1980s greed and excess or to 1990s technological developments. It happened right in the middle of it all. It is still happening now. Much as Sherman's work, both the still and the moving, blurs genres, Office Killer also confounds categories. We do not know where to put it. There is a discomfort to ill-fitting categories, but there is an even greater fear of removing these categories entirely. Sherman, however, leaves us with no choice. In order to understand and appreciate her work, we must erase the old criteria and start fresh. Genres exist to tell us what to expect, but defying these expectations brings freedom. If old conversations do not apply, if existing questions do not provide answers, then we need to begin a new dialogue. Thank you. That was part one. So throughout the book, one of the things that I do is I talk about how different films have influenced it and sort of like the whole intertextuality of cinema. And there's actually, if you have the book in front of you and you look, um, I'm pretty sure it's near the very end, I actually have a diagram um, that was kind of the, to me, which is sort of very amusing, where I chart out all the different films that have influenced uh, Office Killer. And kind of, you know, I talk about, you've got The Wizard of Oz, The Women, Mildred Pierce, all these things, and you can kind of just see how um, they all sort of feed into each other. And I think one of the things that's so great about film is how film is so organic, and, you know, films aren't made in a vacuum. And so it's, if you're understanding one film, you have to appreciate all the different films that sort of came before. And then um, Godard has a quote where he talks about how, you know, every actor is a composite of their body of work. So if you're looking at Molly Ringwald, for instance, there's no way to remove her from John Hughes and The Breakfast Club and all that, like that just kind of becomes her sort of cultural baggage. So um, that said, Office Killer as the sequel to Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct opens the way Office Killer ends, with the deadly blonde with the bob haircut. 
In Basic Instinct, we are not certain if the hair is a wig or not. In Office Killer, however, we are sure that it is, and this alone is significant. For Doreen, this wig provides an interesting twist. It further complicates the notion of identity, since wearing a wig, for her, is fundamentally unnecessary. Why does she suddenly don it for the last scene? Unless you're wearing a wig to cover hair loss, you only wear a wig when you want to change who you are, or when you want to conceal or express your authentic nature in a sudden and spontaneous way. So who is Doreen becoming or impersonating when wearing this wig? Perhaps the most important question to ask is why she wears a wig at all. The metamorphosis of her hair has been a metaphor for her strengthening sense of self, so why would she conceal her hair when she should be revealing herself more than ever? Throughout the film, her hair has grown increasingly looser and freer. Then, at this pivotal moment, concluding her transformation, she hides it under a wig. Could Doreen be intentionally referencing the blonde hair so crucial to the plot of Basic Instinct? Is the wig that concludes Office Killer paying tribute to the wig that opens that earlier film? Is this, in fact, the same blonde wig from Basic Instinct used by Beth to impersonate Catherine? Is Doreen playing Catherine Trammell? Hair, as every woman knows, is crucial to identity. A redhead will often be defined by her hair, much as a blonde is remembered by hers. In the opening scene of Basic Instinct, much as when we first see Doreen, we are denied a view of the woman's face. Instead, all we see is her hair. In Basic Instinct, that hair is blonde, a color representing eroticism, power, and as Camille Paglia observes, deception. Sharon Stone, as Basic Instinct's protagonist, has beautiful blonde hair, with and without a wig. In Office Killer, on the other hand, Doreen's hair is brown, scraggly, uneven, reflecting girls who are mousy, awkward, and unattractive. This is why it is so symbolic that in the film's last scene, Doreen's hair is smooth, shiny, trim, and blonde. With this haircut and color, Doreen channels Sharon Stone as Catherine Trammell, the ultimate ice queen femme fatale of 1990s cinema. A true feminine archetype, Catherine Trammell represents bold sexuality, style, and defiance, reminiscent of an era in which women in film were frequently deadly and devious. What woman did not want to be or do Catherine Trammell in that classic interview scene? Dressed all in white, legs crisscrossing, underwear famously absent, the men her captive and panting audience. Catherine Trammell became an icon, and like other icons, Catherine can be performed by proxy with the help of a bag of clothes and the right wig. Doreen can play Catherine. Even Beth Garner, Jean Triplehorn's character in Basic Instinct, pretends to be Catherine. One of the biggest mysteries left unanswered in Basic Instinct is what happens to Beth. Even though the film implies that the character of Beth Garner is shot to death by Nick, this is never actually confirmed. We never see a dead body draped in a body bag or otherwise. In fact, the stretcher leaves the scene strangely empty. For whatever reason, Beth's fate is left unclear, which leads to an unconventional but intriguing possibility. If Beth had lived on, would she have changed her name a second time? Could she have changed her career from psychologist to office manager? Could she have moved from San Francisco to New York? And if she had switched careers and changed her name, would she be embezzling funds and downsizing employees at Constant Consumer Magazine? Vague, unspoken, sequel-type relationships between films with the same actor and are by the same director are common in neorealist Italian film, so why not in Basic Instinct and Office Killer? 
In Office Killer, Nora gives Doreen a bag of clothes, but we never get to see them. Why is this? Is it because the wig is in there and we are not meant to see it until the very end? Could these be Beth Garner's old clothes? Could Beth Garner's discarded clothes be partially responsible for Doreen's improved fashion sense in the second half of the movie? Is it not merely that Office Killer is referencing basic instinct, but that Doreen is wearing the same actual clothes? Todd Thomas, Office Killer's costume designer, explains that the mementos taken from each of her victims fuel both Doreen's internal and external transformation. However, we never get to see what Doreen takes from Nora. After Doreen kills Nora, the biggest transformation to Doreen's appearance is the wig. The implication, therefore, is that the wig has come from Nora. This wig is her latest and final memento, fueling the last step in Doreen's internal and external transformation. The enigmatic ending of Basic Instinct provides less confirmation that Catherine Trammell is a murderer than that Beth is a psycho suspected in the death of her husband. Catherine, even if she did kill a few people, created works of art in her wake. Beth, even if she did not kill anyone, cheated on her husband, stole someone's identity, had sex with co-workers, let dirty cops back on the street, enjoyed date rape, and, worst of all, walked around with dry hair and boxy suits. <laughs> it is her behavior that is truly monstrous, much as it is Nora's behavior that is most reprehensible. In both films, the true monster is not the first person you think it is. The standards of monstrosity are not measured in terms of bodies. Monstrous behavior is not doing your job, not playing your role. It is this specific kind of inappropriate behavior that is the worst crime of all. Thank you. And now you can ask me anything. Yes, Ramsey. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this film, and uh, I'm a big fan of the insurance. Like, you know, I was, maybe I don't think you can see that in the theater. Like 10 people. I saw it down the stage, but um, the thing that I'm curious about, and we'll talk about it in a bit, but one of the things that, um, that I love so much about the film, because I love Cindy Sherman's work, mm -hmm. is that um, the stuff that she does with herself, which basically is like she carries herself through all these different Personas and kind of sort of reimagining yourself. Right. And, uh, and, and Carol Kane's character in the film, for me, I always felt like sort of like a canvas or tableau for Cindy Sherman doing mm -hmm. the same thing, kind of. And there are these parallels with her photography that I felt like stylistically in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, Sure. Um, a couple bits of trivia. Uh, so Carol Kane in the film, as you may have seen in some of the images, has these crazy eyebrows. Um, and I read that Cindy would do the eyebrows each time. That was sort of like her contribution. Um, so that's just kind of a funny thing. And then I actually have a quote in the book where Cindy said that Doreen was a stand-in for herself. Um, and especially at that, that last shot where she's in the car, she looks like it's a Cindy Sherman photograph. Um, and then I also, in the book, talk about the parallels between them. Because again, one of the things that I was sort of battling against with the book was that people say that the movie doesn't fit in with Cindy's body of work. That it sort of, it doesn't, it doesn't fit, so let's just kind of exclude it. And so I have a, a chapter where I, I outline her kind of chronology and I show that the movie actually fits perfectly in it and actually enriches your understanding. Um, and one of the parallels that I draw is kind of like what you were saying is so Cindy um, in her photographs 
but, you know, plays dress up and, you know, it's like she's, she's the doll. She's all these different people. And then what uh, Doreen does is she, she kills off her coworkers and she brings them to her basement and then she dresses them up and arranges them as if they're dolls. And so I sort of say they're both working with dioramas. The difference is if they're in the actual diorama. So, um, so there, there are definite parallels. This whole idea of sort of the staging of the body, the presentation of the body, absolutely. Right, and so that's why it's the movies. It's like it just it, and this is you know it came right around the same time as Cindy was doing you know her horror pictures. So it, it all fits in very well. And yeah, and just the idea of you know when you when you take a picture of someone, it's it's like you're freezing them. It's like you know they're it's all it's like rigor mortis for that second you take the picture. And so to go from that to having Doreen actually arrange dead bodies is not a big leap. Yeah. So congratulations. Thanks, Christina. Um, so how did you work with Cindy? If at all. Okay. Um, Cindy, uh, for those who don't know, is a very famously kind of private person, and uh, and so she she knew about the book when I first started working on it. I sent her, I think, like the first seventy pages. Um, I sent them to her care of her gallery. Um, oh, but just to, to dial it back. So in the introduction of the book, I talk about that I actually that I had a rapport with Cindy way back when when I was an undergrad, and. Um, I'd read a book somewhere that said, you know, that whenever you're at a crossroads in your life, to ask your heroes for advice. So you should write to Jeremy Lin. Um, and uh, and so for some reason, when I was an undergrad and I was trying to decide if I wanted to go to, to art school or not. I wrote to Cindy again, care of her um, her gallery, and I said I'm trying to decide what to do with my life and should I go to grad school? Because she didn't. She just has a BA. Um, and she actually wrote back. Uh, and we exchanged letters for a little bit where she was sort of giving me advice and, on whether to go to grad school or not or whatever. So we'd had that kind of rapport. Um, so I don't know if that helped kind of embolden me to then send her the book. I don't know if I, or maybe I was done anyway. But I sent her the first 70 pages, um, care of the gallery, and it took her about a year. And then she emailed me back and she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. This got buried on my desk and I've, I've looked through it. It looks fascinating. Keep me updated. And then it was kind of like, okay. So then over the next five years or whatever, I would just check in with her periodically and I would say, you know, when I kept, what I would do is like every six months, I would sort of get a new burst of enthusiasm and I'd try to get the book published. Um, and I would, you know, send off query letters or whatever. I kept getting rejected, but then I would I would publish like excerpts from it or whatever. So whenever anything happened, I'd let her know. So she like she knew and she was supportive, but she wasn't like go get them. You know, she was kind of like okay. Um, I don't know if she was sort of being doubt doubtful. I don't know. She just um, when I was working on the book, I did interview a few people that were involved. So I interviewed James Seamus, who was the executive producer. I interviewed Christine Vachon, um, who produced it. I interviewed one of the writers. I interviewed the costume designer. And I didn't, I didn't initially ask her because I kind of figured she wouldn't want to be. But then I was like, what if she's offended that I didn't? So then I wrote to her and I just said, you know, hey, I've interviewed these people and I'm assuming you don't really want to be interviewed, but if you'd like to chat, we can. And she was like, no, that's okay. Um, so yeah, so she was kind of, so she, and then, you know, she's, she's, she's in the loop, but she's never, you know, she's now reading the book for the first time. So she's been supportive, and she's written me like these very nice letters about how much it means to her that you know someone cared enough about this movie because I'm sure it was a huge blow to her ego um, that it was sort of just kind of disappeared, and you know she doesn't work well with other people. So for her, it was this like really kind of I think very challenging experience. To I mean, she doesn't even have an assistant, so to go from that to doing a movie, I mean, I can't even imagine how she did it sort of psychologically. Um, so I'm sure she you know she did it. It got negative reviews, and she was like, I'm done. 
And so she like rarely even talks about the movie in interviews and stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to frame this because I've seen Basic Instinct and I've heard much about Office Killer, but okay. um, hopefully this doesn't sound aggressive. But mm. would she agree that it was it has some connection to Basic Instinct, or is this something that you sort of think? You sort of threw it there as a fun thing, or would she sort of wink and say maybe, or what's her take on that, or is that just sort of a flip way you're looking at it? And I don't mean to... No, 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 it's fine. Um, I mean, it was, it was intended half flip, half not on my account. I mean, she knows that there's a basic instinct chapter. Um, she hasn't read it yet, um, but she emailed me a couple days ago that she was like looking forward to reading it. So, I mean, Basic Instinct came out in 92, and then this came out in 97, and Basic Instinct was really Jean Triplehorn's sort of, you know, like that was her big kind of thing at, the, you know, at that time. So there's no way that they cast Jean Triplehorn without knowing about Basic Instinct. Um, so, and the fact that she's wearing a wig in that last scene is really random and bizarre. So it's possible. Um, I have no way of knowing, but in the um, in the book, I, I talk at great length about the similarities between Office Killer and whatever happened to Baby Jane, um, and uh, there's so many similarities that it's just it's just not possible that they didn't acknowledge. I mean, even like little things, um, like Joan Crawford's character had a bird, and then in Office Killer, Doreen's mother, who is kind of like um, the Joan Crawford character, has a bird cage, and then uh, there's a scene, there's a moment where like. Joan Crawford's watching something on TV, and then Doreen's mother's watching something similar on TV. So just like there's all these things, and again, I have no confirmation that there's any kind of connection, but there's so many parallels that it's it's really kind of ridiculous. And just um, in Baby Jane, there's a whole thing with like severing contact with the outside world, and um, Betty Davis pulls the phone cord out of the wall, and an office killer, Doreen's mother, um, is in a wheelchair, and she has this uh, machine that brings her up and down the stairs in the wheelchair and Doreen unplugs it so her mom can't get down the stairs. So again, I've, there's no basis for evidence, but there, there's so many odd little quirks. And again, it's all to kind of emphasize the sort of intertextuality. And again, this stuff might be subconscious, you know, so, you know, Cindy might not have made the connection, you know, on, a, on an explicit level, but there's just, there's so much of this going on that it's kind of like, you know, you have to, and then you have to talk about working girl also. So it's like, you don't know, but it's fun to think about. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Fun to yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Because the way Cindy works by herself and all of her other work, do you have any idea if she at one time considered playing all parts herself? I didn't. I didn't ask her that, but I'm sure. I'm sure that was never a viable option because I know that they wanted this to be a commercial movie, and that would have obviously been this kind of like art film. Um, the impetus behind the film. Um, is was uh, so James Seamus and Ted Hope, um, who, if you don't know, are uh, these sort of established producers. They were talking one day, and actually, this is a, a funny small world thing. Is when I interviewed James Seamus, I found out that his advisor, when he was getting his PhD, was Carol Clover, who's the woman who famously had that whole final girl thing that I talked about. So my whole speculation about the influence of Carol Clover was actually like a very valid thing because James Seamus had been mentored by her and he said that one time he brought um, Carol Clover and Christine Vachon together to his house for dinner and it was this very like kind of um, pleasing thing for him to have these two legendary women in the same room so 
sometimes speculation could be valid. But anyway, so um, so James Seamus and Ted Hope had this idea of let's make smart horror films, and they formed this production company called Good Fear, and they were going to make three um, smart horror films and kind of see where it went. And the idea was that this could be a money making endeavor. And then they approached Christine Vachon, and Christine Vachon was all on board. And Christine Vachon's girlfriend shows at Metro Pictures. So then they said, oh, let's introduce, let's talk to Cindy Sherman. Um, and they approached her, and she said, okay. And so that was kind of where the ball came, where the ball was rolling. So I know it was never conceived as a sort of art picture. Um, and I know that a bunch of the people that uh, starred in the movie were Cindy's fans. And so it's like basically as soon as they knew this was happening, they were like, oh, we want to be in the film. So she didn't originate. The concept was her and this woman, Elise McAdam. Um, and they kind of, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was like a 50-50 thing, but I know that the, the, the first draft of the script and the story came from Cindy and Elise McAdam. Um, well, together was just was Carol Clover and Christine Vachon as like the producers. And then they went to Cindy and they said, do you want to do a movie? And then Cindy got together with Elise McAdam, and they um, and they sort of did like the first draft of the script, and then it went to Tom Kalin, um, who worked on it some more, and then actually um, Todd Haynes did the final pass. Um, so, so I so and it, you know there, there's so much of Cindy in the story that I'm sure she was you know she was very involved in that sort of in the concept. And I know when I when I talked to to Christine Vachon and I said you know how, did, how much creative control did Cindy have over this project? And Christine basically said you know she could do whatever she wanted. Yeah. Uh, what was the negative criticism? Um, well. In many ways, it was ignored. Um, Miramax bought the film sight unseen and then uh, did some test screenings of it and decided they were just going to bury it. Um, but I know one one criticism that to me was just made me so out, outraged um, was, so when the film came out, the New York Times reviewed it, as they kind of had to. But significantly, Roberta Smith, the arts critic, reviewed it, not a film critic, which I thought was also was sort of a, a miscalculation. And then over the course of the review, she talks about the film as, quote, a retrospective of Cindy's photographs which kind of misses the point entirely. And then I can't remember how she phrased it exactly, but she has this very, very kind of snarky last paragraph where she, she talked, the, the review talks about how the film fails. And then in the last paragraph, she says something like, well, a little failure will be good for Cindy to give her a little humility. Yeah, it was just like, whoa, all right. They're like, you know, basically, you know, she's been, she's had, you know, everything has come to her so easily that, you know, it's good for her if she has one project that fails. Yeah, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, I apologize in advance if this comes across as a stream of consciousness. Uh, great summary on, uh, on genre and subversion. Uh, but I wonder how much in the book do you delve into uh, horror and its connection to noir? To noir? Noir. Yeah. Noir, uh, in relation to its underlying criticism, uh, Marxist criticism of capitalism. And to that end, uh, the accumulation of bodies as the accumulation of wealth, and of course our distancing of uh, the human interaction, interaction with the products we make, uh, which is commodity fetishism, of course. Uh, just yeah. Um, well, I, I definitely I talk about Marx. Um, 
I, I cut him out just in terms of interest of time, but I talk about capitalism as sort of like this vampire um, kind of, you know, sucking the souls of the people. And I basically say that's what Nora is doing when she's, you know, she's literally embezzling the money from the company. So I bring Marx in um, sort of in that context of Nora as a sort of evil capitalistic villain. Um, and then I talk about genre uh, sort of extensively in the book. And what I do is I say that one of the reasons why the film failed is because it, it it isn't just one, it doesn't fit into one genre box. And so we don't really like that because we like it when a film is, oh, that's a rom-com, that's a sci-fi, this is a horror, whatever. And so I analyze the film as a horror film, as a comedy, and as a noir. Um, and I sort of talk about how it's really a combination of the three. And so you can't, you can't just view it as one. And so each, I have like separate chapters for each one of those. The great films need to be negotiated. I agree, yes. Any other questions? Yeah. Did you see this film when it first came out? I did. So, in, in like the what, 30 years since, what, like, how has it changed when you watched it um, Well, what's, what's interesting is I feel like I'm not the kind of person who can usually watch films over and over again. And I always get a little bit annoyed when we have to write a paper and I, the, you know, I have to watch a film two or three times to write the paper because it, it I get bored very easily. And there's something about this film where I can just watch it over and over and over again and it just never gets boring. Um, and it's, it's weird because it's, it seems like it would be very easy to dismiss it. You know, that it just, it comes across, it's this 82 minute camp or, you know, it's about some woman who's killing people. I mean, just see, it's, you know, on the surface, it seems like there's nothing there. Um, and then like every time I watch it, there's just, there's so much going on that it's like, I watch it and it's like, I just keep blinks out of it. So it's weird because it doesn't feel dated. And what else is strange is it doesn't even really feel, except for the technology and the sort of like the subtext, it doesn't even really feel like a 90s film. Like it's it's got this like weird sort of timeless quality and it's shot there are very few exterior shots. So you're always like inside buildings, which again sort of makes it hard to kind of date it because you don't see the outside world. And then um, the magazine that she works for is called Constant Consumer, but yet there's nothing kind of consumption-ish about the decor. The decor feels like this sort of, you know, second-rate insurance agent office. I mean, it's really like lots of, you know, like linoleum and brown and fluorescent light. And so it's, it's like, you could walk into like this building downtown LA and probably find something that looks exactly like that today. So it's like, the, it has like this weird sort of timeless quality. Um, so it, I feel like it's not dated at all. And then what, what, one of my favorite activities is watching the movie with people that have never seen it before because I get to watch them watch it and then I get new stuff out of that every time too. Heidi. Um, yeah, no, I was going to ask a similar question. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, you saw the movie when it came first. I did. So when did you get inspired to actually write about it? Um, it was when I was getting my master's, and um, my I was trying to figure out what to write my thesis on, and every topic that I was proposing, they kept shooting down. And the um, my uh, advisor was like, why don't you do Cindy's photographs? Because he knew that I was a fan. Um, but I'd written about her photographs 
in college and so I just kind of felt like I've been there I've done that and like you know it's already been done by everybody else as well like I don't have anything new to say about that um, but the movie I think it always kind of lodged into my head as sort of like again this this void in the conversation and it was like well, and then the more I started kind of looking into it and realizing because I thought well maybe I just I've missed stuff that's been written about it but then it was like there really isn't anything there about it and so then I became really drawn to it um, just for kind of for those reasons that it was sort of this ignored uh, text and you know the, the the movie came out right around the same time that Schnabel did Basquiat and Robert Longo did Johnny Mnemonic and so it was like all these male artists were doing these films were getting all this attention and then it's I think like the feminist in me was like well, why isn't the woman getting attention so it was kind of like all these different things kind of came together but I think at the time I didn't realize like it was one of the things where I didn't I didn't know it was gonna be this huge project like I thought I'll just write a paper on it and I'll be done and then it was like the more I wrote about it the more I realized oh my god there's still so much to be said and what's funny actually is when I was working on the book and I wanted to figure out how to organize it because it was just like all these different chapters and so I was like oh well let me look at other books on single films and see how they organize it and I realized nobody writes books on one film I mean you have like the BFI film classics which are like 70 pages with lots of photos but like nobody writes an entire book on one film you'll have you know three films by David Lynch or whatever and then it's like each film gets a chapter but people don't write 250 pages on one movie um, and I just felt like there was all this stuff there to be said and also again kind of from a sociological perspective to really kind of what was it saying about America and our social behavior and all this stuff so that's my interest to kind of the more I the more I kept reading about it thinking about it the more I felt like I had to say you know I had stuff to say about it Well, this is also what's really interesting is that, is that most people haven't, people haven't heard of it, you know, and it's, it's on Netflix Instant, it's on Amazon, I mean, it's not, it's not for a lack of accessibility, um, it's just, there's just a lack of awareness that it exists, because nobody talks about it. I know when I was, I think it was maybe when I gave my publisher the first draft of my book, my publisher suggested that I add a list of all the other books that talk about Office Killer as sort of like a, a selected bibliography. And I was like, did you read my book? Because there's no book that talks about Office Killer. Like, you kind of missed the point. Um, yeah, there's just, there's nothing. They're like a handful of articles, like when the movie came out, that sort of reviewed it, or you know, um, and there are a couple critics that dismiss it, you know, that they mention it only to then dismiss it. Um, but yeah, it's just it's not talked about. It's very weird. Yeah, I was wondering about the gap because it can also long. Yeah, you said it's timeless. It's timeless. Yeah, it doesn't feel. I mean, I know a bunch of you have seen it as a result of me inflicting it on you, um, and it it stands the test of time. It's very entertaining. Yes. I mean, I saw the movie at one of your, your showings, and um, I typically don't go to general release movies, mm -hmm. but I like video art a lot. Right. It struck me as video art in the sort of film packaging. Yeah, absolutely. To it, and that's why you can keep thinking about it and view it many times, because it is timelessness. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's beautiful to look at. You can definitely get a sense of Cindy's aesthetic as you watch it. You know, I mean, it's, it's you know, there, there are definitely there are shots where you can watch, you can see it, and you're like, oh, my God, that's a total Cindy moment. And it's, it's an art piece. And it's abstracted. Yes. Yeah, Ramsey. I have one question about the uh, title sequence. Mm -hmm. For me, it's like one of my favorite title sequences. It's just beautiful. And the, the, you know, it's a copier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Again, talking about identity and stuff, I don't know, did you, did you delve into that or I don't know what that fits in, but 
that that sequence says something. I don't know what what quite it's saying, but like you know, it, there commodification, like you know, people they, you know being robots or whatever, or is it different cases for different people? Um, I talk about the opening sequence. I have there's a section in my book where I basically just kind of do a close analysis of the film and I sort of go through it sort of scene by scene. Um, and I just sort of say the opening sequence uh, just kind of it establishes the, the, the tone and the mood of the film, the atmosphere, just right off the bat. And that I think is it's the most um, it, the sort of its biggest purpose is just to kind of key you into sort of the vibe of the film. Any other questions? I have no idea. A, a million. <laughs> did Cindy yeah. Sherman the final cut of the film, or did they recut it when they were up tearing it? So I remember there was some rumor that Miramax took control and just made it much more palatable. Because it was that area of the tent, the basic instincts, all those films that have the psychopath in it. Right. I actually haven't heard that. James Seamus didn't say anything about that, neither did Christine Vachon. And the the impression that I got from both of them was really that Miramax got it. And this was during the um, sort of film history was Miramax at that time. This was like, it wasn't the only film that it did this to. Where they, they bought a bunch of films. It was sort of, this was like their financial plan. So they bought a, they bought a bunch of films um, without, you know, and this one they didn't even see it. And they would do these test screenings. And then if it didn't perform a certain way, it wasn't worth um, promoting it. And then they just stuck it in a box. So that's what basically happened. So I, it wouldn't make sense to me that they would re-edit it because they didn't have any intention of releasing it. You know, I think they watched it. Um, I know that uh, people were very confused that Molly Ringwald wasn't playing the lead. Um, and then that was that they wanted more Molly Ringwald. That was a sort of a frequent um, response from the, uh, the, the audiences. Um, and so I feel like it wouldn't make sense for them to edit it because they just were like, oh, we're not going to do anything with this. And so it had a very limited release and I think you know, like some art house theaters or whatever and then it just disappeared. Why do you think the art world rejected it so much? Because even when they have Cindy Sherman or perspectives, it's not screened as part of it. It really isn't. Yeah. yeah. I've seen like big Cindy Sherman perspectives, and that's never been mentioned. It might be in a footnote. Right. It's not screened. It's not presented. Well, I think it's a couple different things. I think first of all, I think it's not necessarily artsy enough for whatever um, criteria. And I think also it's one of those things where nobody knows about it. Like even people in the art world don't know about it. So then it becomes this like vicious cycle of like, well, you don't know about it because no one's talking about it because nobody knows about it. Um, I know that when she had a retrospective at, at MoMA a couple years ago, they did screen the film. Um, and I, I wrote to... Uh, I talked to the curator and I said, like, I would love to come and I can give a talk. I said, or I can, I can write up like a, a thing you can photocopy and hand out. Like I was like, just because I'm kind of the only person who knows anything about this film. And I was like, I'd love to help. And they were like, we're not interested. So they screened it. I wasn't there, but I'm imagining that they just like screened it period the end. Um, it wasn't mentioned in the exhibit. I don't think it was really mentioned in the text. I don't remember for the retrospective. Um, I don't know if it was screened when the retrospective went to San Francisco or to Texas. But yeah, it's, it's just, it's really just kind of ignored. Yeah, in the back. Hey, uh, I may have missed this already because I wasn't here for the whole event, but when you mentioned the two uh, producers and that they wanted to start a company that was doing smart horror films, I immediately wanted to ask you, do you know of any other examples of, of things that they 
produced that we might be able to compare to what they thought what they saw in the city's work? Um, no, basically this was such a failure that they said, okay, screw that. <laughs> <laughs> and so they didn't they didn't revisit the, the concept. Right. I mean I know I think James Seamus implied that they didn't lose money on the film, that I feel like whatever Miramax paid for it covered them, um, but I know that it was a huge disappointment. And I know one thing that was really sweet was when I, I emailed his assistant to ask if I could get an interview, and I said, I'm working on a book on Office Killer, and I'd love to talk to him. Um, and I sent the email at 9 a.m., and she wrote back right away and said, how about at noon? And I was like, okay. And then we talked for like an hour, and he was super, super nice. And, and I asked him, I said, what's it, I mean, I'm not in the Hollywood industry. I said, what's it like to invest all this time and energy in a film and then have it go nowhere? And he said, well, you know, first, you know, you understand that even with bad criticism, life goes on. You know, today is no different than yesterday. So it's like, okay, you got a bad review, whatever, life moves on. And then he said, and then one day out of the blue, someone calls you up and says they're writing a book on your movie and then everything's worthwhile. <laughs> So that was really sweet. Oh, and also I was uh, telling Carrie um, that, oh, and you mentioned this a little bit in the intro, that, uh, you know, she's been, she's been reading the book and she's, she, she's enjoying it and she said that it's made her think about doing another movie, which would be amazing. Yeah. Um, this took you five years to write. What yes. Um, but it took, to be fair, it took five years while I was working full-time and didn't have a book deal. Um, once I got the book deal, it was like, holy crap, now I have to finish the book, and then everything would move very intensely. Um, the, the next project is actually sort of inspired by, by this one, and I was, very, um, I was very invested in the conversation that I get into in this book about disease and sort of, the, sort of how AIDS changed our notion of, of intimacy and health and immunity and, and social interaction. And um, in Office Killer, there's this, um, there are a couple different subplots that I link into AIDS. Uh, one is that there's this cold that's going around the office, and they kind of keep referencing, oh, it's Gary's cold, don't get Gary's cold. And nobody touches anybody in the movie, and that anybody that behaves physically inappropriately dies. Um, so there's just, so there, that just to me is like such a loaded kind of gun. And then I talk in the book about SAFE, um, which Todd Haynes did, which came out two years before this. And I deal again with how that sort of was changing our notion of our body's immunities. And you know, in, you know, in the, in this, in Office Killer, she brings these bodies home and they're literally decomposing in her basement. So we're seeing the inside made outside. And so I just felt like there's so much there and that deserves another book. So my next one I want to talk about sort of contagion and the outbreak narrative and sort of how you know our ideas of immunities and ourselves have changed both in the wake of sort of the outbreak narrative but also sort of globalization and technology which are very closely linked. I mean, if you see the Soderbergh film, Contagion, it's more about the way that the disease spreads and our reaction to it than the disease itself. So there's so much kind of going on there. And um, it's interesting, like, you know, Pre-AIDS, everybody sort of felt like, oh, we're done with epidemics, you know, and there was sort of this level of complacency, and, you know, budgets were being cut in all these health industries, and they just kind of felt like, oh, we're good, we're good now, you know, and then AIDS sort of comes out of nowhere, and it's like, oh, my God, and then now it's like these days, it's like every other week, it seems like there's an epidemic somewhere, so there's definitely been this kind of shift in the social consciousness, and so that's sort of what I want to explore, and hopefully it doesn't take five years. <laughs> Any other questions? All right, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.